Oh, this is exciting. High Performance is back. Hi, everyone. Welcome along to the first episode of the third series of the High Performance Podcast. Listen, if you're new, the way it works is that every Monday we drop a new episode with a new amazing guest and myself and my co-host, Professor Damien Hughes, will just aim to inspire you, to uplift you, to equip you with all you need to take on your own life by having a really honest conversation with the person who joins us. If you're totally new to the podcast, let me just recommend that you go right back to the beginning the first episode of the first series when we spoke to rio ferdinand you can subscribe for free of course wherever you get your podcasts you can follow myself damien or the podcast over instagram or find our youtube channel but this week we're kicking off series three in style with a conversation with a man you've heard a lot from but you've not heard this kind of stuff how did you feel watching liverpool win it this year was there a part of you that was envious, jealous? No, not one, one beer. Honestly? Not one beer. I knew what that meant, that premiership, to an awful lot of people. We can't wait for you to hear this week's episode. Let's get to it. This week's High Performance Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their high performance life. And you can't do a job like this on your own. Professor Damien Hughes is alongside me. And look, Damien, some people love football because of the game. It's about the winning and it's about the losing. Others love it for the competitiveness, the heart, the passion, the will. And I think today's guest epitomises all of those things. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to uh, interviewing our guest today. Not only to find out about being an elite performer themselves, but how they've made that transition to help others uh, perform at their best as well. Okay, well, today we are joined by a leader. He currently leads Glasgow Rangers Football Club, looking to win their first league title in almost a decade. He was a leader as a player, the only player to score in an FA Cup final, League Cup final, UEFA Cup final and Champions League final, winning every single one. But how did he become a leader? 
And then after that, how did he become a winner? How did the experiences that he had on the pitch equip him to lead from the sidelines? And what lessons in leadership can you learn from today's high performance guest to improve your own life? Welcome to the podcast, Stephen Gerrard. Thank you. Nice to have you with us. So what is high performance? Yeah, to me, it's a, a level. And if you think about a scale, um, it's obviously finding that level that's close to the top, if not at the top. And then it's about finding that consistency to try and maintain that over a period of time. You were, you were known as quite a quiet kid that loved his football when you first came on the scene. When did you become a, an actual leader or someone who had decided that he was going to operate, as you just described, at the absolute top and lead other people? I think to, to outsiders, I was probably known as someone who was quiet, but in my own little circles and bubbles, I was maybe a, a cheeky type of a person. Um, I think if you speak to people that are close to me, I don't think they'd describe me as a quiet kid. They'd probably describe me as someone who was obsessed with a ball, obsessed with competing, uh, whether it be in, in the house with my brother, whether it be with uh, close family in the garden, whether it be on a field, local, on my council estate where I grew up. They would say, and I've heard them say that I'd do anything to come out on top, anything to make sure that I was the winner. And it was a everyday thing. It was never a, a phase. It was always the ball before school, the ball before visiting nans, the ball before food. It was always the ball. And what was it that gave you that drive to want to be competitive and want to be the best and have to come out on top, Stephen? I think it's probably a combination of things. I think the area where... Uh, I grew up, certainly uh, helped, me, helped me to prepare. There's lots and lots of kids on the council estate who want to play football every single day. Right. Uh, tough kids who are, who are game for the competitive side of the game. I've got an older brother who's two and a half years older who was very competitive as well and um, pushed me around a bit, let's say. My dad, very sporty football family. So I think that upbringing uh, helped me get to the top for sure, 100%. And can I ask you around the role of Steve Highway? He always fascinates me in your story that he sort of had come from that Shankly school and understood the Liverpool way in many ways. Uh, how significant was he then in taking on from the role of your father? Yeah, I, I think at a, at a young age, I remember being in the car. Um, we didn't always have a car. We had times when... We'd have a car and then maybe we couldn't afford a car. So it was like maybe public transport to and from. It was called the Centre of Excellence back then, which would be known nowadays as an academy. Uh, and I remember my dad saying to me, the staff had pulled him in and said, we want to keep this kid here for, for a long time. So they obviously seen something at a younger age. I remember talking to you about early on in training, either one of your coaches or your manager at the time, saying, Stephen, you don't have to break everyone in half with every tackle. I remember you explained to me once that you were obsessed about getting into the Liverpool first team. And the final thing that sticks in my memory from conversations we've had is when we, you talk about you were going to take someone's place in the first team and you were not going to let them get that place back. Yeah, I, I certainly had an obsession to get to Liverpool's first team. I think that got stronger and stronger as I was getting older and going through the years. I think in terms of the yellow cards, it was always going to be the case the way I played because I liked to play on the edge. I always found my best performances were when I went on autopilot and I committed everything and I let it go 
And that's probably a small range of where you need to get to to be at your absolute best. So all these experiences eventually lead you to having an amazing career as a, as a Liverpool player. You then had a period in America, some time on the television. You've talked about just sort of catching your breath a bit, which I think is totally acceptable after the life that you lived in this, in this city. And then you step straight back in to remarkably somewhere almost as kind of intense as Liverpool as a footballing city, which is in Glasgow. Was there not a part of you that thought, actually, Glasgow's um, a bit like a goldfish bowl, a bit like Liverpool is? Or is that what you need in your football? Do you need that absolute intensity? I think it's a massive buzz to me. I found it hard to give up being a player at Liverpool. Uh, I was on the back of a real brutal, cruel low in my life. Uh, in 2014, the, the Chelsea episode, which still lives with me till today. So I think in terms of the decisions I made from there going to America to come out of the city, just to breathe, relax and freshen up and decide what, what I thought was the next chapter for me. You know, was it TV? Was it coaching? What age did I want to coach at? But it struck me pretty quickly that I missed the competitive side and the daily routine of competing and that buzz of the highs that I've had during the player, I want to experience them highs again because for me, the, the highs well outweigh the lows, even though I've had one or two crushing lows. Yeah. Why can't you let those go? I don't know. I don't know. I think I've um, worked really hard to accept them situations, but I still think now part of me is chasing more highs because I think what I've given to the sport from seven or eight years of age, I think I deserve more highs. I still think more about the lows. I don't know why. Really? So that moment that you reference in, in 2014, mm. are you not able to put some perspective on it? I do that every day and I do that and I park it up, but it, it comes back all the time. And what triggers it then? Just me reflecting. I, I, I am someone who thinks a lot. I always try and tap into experiences. But do you not replace it with, say, the image of... Istanbul and the, the comeback there. And yeah, all, all the time. And, and, you know, this is not a thing that happens every single day, but it was such a big moment. Uh, I've had lots and lots of moments, some incredible moments, which I never dreamed of. But a career takes you to some lows as well, and it'd be easy if you just lifted the carpet, pushed them under, and you never thought about them ever again. But I don't think that's ever going to be the case. Sure, but I remember hearing Bill Bezik, the sports psychologist, once say it was advised to Roy Keane about... Football's about managing the lows because there's far more of them than there are going to be highs. And surely as a manager, you're, you've I, signed up I, to that. I, I, at the moment, I'm trying to use it as a positive in terms of like, I think the reason why I've wanted to take the challenge up of being a manager, I mean, I don't see myself as a manager yet. I see myself as someone who's trying to grow and become a, a top manager. Um, and that's going to take a long time. I think a lot of coaches... They have, who don't have the football career, for example, I had, they have 15, 20 years to prepare themselves. For example, a Mourinho, a, a Brendan Rodgers, who maybe haven't had the football career. The reason they're so good at what they do and they're so slick because they've had 20 years experience. I haven't, I won't have that luxury because I played. Um, so for me, it's going to be a different type of journey. Given your reputation and your name, could you not have given yourself five years to go and accelerate that learning process and for you'd sure. still I get had, a job I had on the that back. Decision. For sure, Rangers come too soon because I'm two years into learning to be a coach. Uh, I haven't really got a time frame on it when I'm going to jump in or 
blah, blah, blah. Or if anyone's going to come and all of a sudden one day the Rangers opportunity comes and you get a feeling in your stomach and it takes you back to feelings you get as a player and you think, I fancy a bit of this. This is a bit of me. And you, you talk now about the Rangers opportunity coming early for you for a couple of years there. How much did you not know about management when you took that job, despite the fact you'd spent your entire career under, under managers? I watch managers very closely, uh, how they done their roles. Um, I always used to think, what, what are they doing in their office? What do they do from the moment I leave Melwood? What do they do for the rest of the day? I wonder what, I, I, it was always fascinated me. The, from what age? Probably coming towards my 30s. Right. Um, I had no interest in coaching throughout my 20s or becoming a manager, really. I was just really in the zone of being a player, really. Um, but it always fascinated me towards the, the later years, if you like, or coming into the 30s, you know, what's it like? What's their buzz? What do they do on a daily basis? What else does their job entail? And I thought I knew a lot of it because I watched them quite closely. But when you step into becoming a manager yourself, there's a lot more to it than you actually think. Can you remember that biggest sort of learning curve early on at Rangers when you thought, wow, okay. Yeah, I, I don't think it was, a, it was a learning curve, but I remember addressing the team the squad for the, for first, the first time. time. Yeah. And um, I had a few days and weeks to prepare for what I was going to say. But for me, the key thing was to, to let them know that I'm not standing here addressing you to Steven Gerrard, the player. I'm not going to think I'm this person because I've had a, a decent football career. This is me here to try and help and support you to try and improve users as a group, to try and use my experiences and my knowledge and my team of people who I've worked ever so hard to get around me. And we as a group are going to try and help you. We're there for you. Uh, and we'll do everything we can. We'll sacrifice everything we can for you individually and collectively to get you in a better place because at the time, Rangers were suffering. So what did you want from those players? What was the culture that you wanted them to find at that football club under you? We wanted to create uh, a culture where it was a no-excuse culture. So, yes, we'll make the training ground better. We'll make Ibrox better. We'll get you a better kit. We'll get you better food. We'll get you better. We'll take all the excuses away. But then you have to buy into having that responsibility and that accountability. I'll do everything I can to protect you. And I'll take as much responsibility... I want you to just go and play with freedom, express yourselves and give me the best version of you. And if we got that collectively around the group or got the majority buying into that, there was no doubt Rangers were going to improve. We also knew that over a period of time with what had been said to me in the chats with the board and the yeah. chairman that we were going to add players to it and we were going to recruit better players to help them. I think that was music to their ears as well, that... We have got the support of the board to get people in who are going to help us get better. And talking to them as a group is one thing, but getting to what you can call the heart of the player rather than the head of the player is something totally different. To work with individuals to really understand them. Yeah, I think you've got that takes time. I don't think that happens on day one. I think I had to get used to the players, get to know them individually. I knew them from the outside. And you can't know a person by watching them on the TV or playing against them previously. I think it takes time to build a relationship, to build a trust. And what are your processes for building that? Time, one-on-one -on -one chats, getting to know people, letting them know what type of person I am away from Steven Gerrard, the footballer, 
you know, family man, yeah. family first. Right, so getting to know them, but also letting them really get to, get know, to know you. Get to know me. Right. And showing that I'm there for them. You know, I'm not in this role just for me. Of course, I want to do well. I want to be a good manager. I want to be a successful Rangers manager. But now it's about not just me and you, it's about us. What are we going to give us to make this better and take it forward? But that takes time. Can I ask you then, Stan, that I remember speaking to um, Ferenc Soriano, the city chief exec that had been responsible for when Guardiola took over at Barcelona. And one of the criteria that he said he, he used when he looked at him was they looked at it through three lenses. One was credibility. So did he have knowledge? One was around uh, the kind of energy and enthusiasm for the job. But then the third one was the role of integrity that he had to... So if you're asking players to do a certain thing, you couldn't be seen to be a hypocrite. You had to be role modelling the behaviours that you're asking everyone else to buy into. Yeah. So what are those behaviours that you're asking people to buy into? I, I think early on, as you, you talk about a culture, uh, I think you'd have, obviously, you'd have standards on the training pitch. You'd have standards that you'd expect in a game, but it's also a daily thing, what you're asking the players. You know, how they behave, what standards you expect of them. The standards you believe in, your non-negotiables and stuff. And so, what are you know, they? Basically, who we representing? We're representing Rangers, who are built on winning and standards and history and tradition, and a lot of legends, managers, players have gone before us. We have a responsibility to carry on that tradition and them standards. Um, I I want people to come to work. It has to be enjoyable. It has to be, but there needs to be. Uh, a realisation from the players to know when when do we enjoy this and when do we work. And I think once that balance, once the players understand that balance of, yes, I want you to skip into work, you've got to have energy, you've got to enjoy it, you've got to bring something. Um, but when the whistle goes and we work, we all have to commit and give everything we've got. And that's that's how we go about it in terms of our culture. And how do you deal with players that don't do that? I deal with every player the same, Jake. I try and show them respect and, and, and honesty. That's the way I've been brought up, even outside of football. Try and be respectful, try and be honest. You know, I think you've got to realise you're not going to get everything right. You're not going to get every signing right. Uh, not every player that you take over is going to be perfect for you or fit into how you play or what you want. That doesn't mean they're a bad player or a bad person. So I think if you have real honest and respectful communication with everyone sometimes you have to tell them stuff they don't want to know but i think eventually they'll realize that you've done it i wonder whether that was informed by your time as a player that you had managers who were totally open with you and were warm with you and brought you in and then you had managers who were much colder and you weren't really sure where you stood with them and you found that difficult perhaps yeah i've never really tried to copy a manager to a mm. team I've tried to take different things from from all of them but I liked it and I preferred it when a manager looked me in the eye and was honest so if I was good I wanted the manager to tell me I was good if I needed to do stuff better and improve I wanted the manager to look at me in the eye and go I think you can do better I think you can do more sometimes that puts a lump in your throat when you hear something that you maybe don't want to hear yeah but in your own time if if you're a proper athlete, performer, or proper pit. I think you need to respect that. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What was the one bit of feedback you that you received off a coach that maybe was difficult that you feel had the biggest difference on your performance? Uh, Rafa Benitez was probably the, the one that took my game to the next level. I thought I was a really, really good player when Rafa came in, but I probably wasn't. Um, and he noticed pretty early that I needed to improve positionally. Um, discipline sort of when to run forward, how many times are you running forward, what are you leaving behind when you run forward. Sometimes you don't have to run forward, sometimes the job's different. And it was that un game understanding of... You know, your role in the team. I was someone who was full on, you know, full of energy, going to do as much as I can. How many times I'm going to make the box? How many crosses I'm going to get in? How many shots? And he got me to become more of a team player, more game aware, understand the tactical side of it, who we playing against. And why did you find that difficult to hear? Because I, I thought I was all right. I thought I was fine. You know, I was 23, I think, at the time. I was scoring goals. I was playing well. The, fa the fans like me, but football's about levels and he's trying to get me to become one of the best midfielders in Europe. He's wanting me to, not just for me to be maybe a good player domestically, he wants to make me uh, a top-class player. And I think a top-class player has different things to the game. It's not just about your talent uh, and, and your strengths. It's about an understanding of the game, how the game works, uh, phases within the game. The tactical side of it, you know, like what are the opposition going to do and who you're up against. And that's the reason why it's such a fascinating game. But he is the most fascinating and the most tactically aware manager that I ever played. So under. how would you deal with a, with a player then that was either in that comfort zone of I'm happy just being a good player and you're trying to take me to another level and I'm quite, and I don't want to go. Or somebody that is deluded that at the level that they think they're at. How would you handle that now as a well, I think as a player, you've got that option. You either take advice on board and you're open. You're open to 
improve little small areas to try and go. I, I think as a footballer, you can never stop learning and growing. But I, as a coach, I, how would you handle that footballer that didn't want to do that? I, I, I talk to them and well, it's a choice. I'd never force a player to, to change his game. I'd never force a player to do anything. I'd chat to him. You know, you're open. This is what we see. Um, I'd maybe back up what I'm trying to do with what I'd seen. If a player's performing really well and strong and I think he's fine, I'll leave him be. I'll let him crack on. I think you'd only try and improve a player if you see things or there's evidence where you think he can do things slightly different, which will elevate his game. But we, we get massive buy-in from every player at any age to improve because I believe I've got a fantastic staff and I've got an environment which is a learning environment and we don't care whether you're 18 or 38. We're still having chats with Jermaine Defoe, little certain things. Jermaine Defoe is an unbelievable player, unbelievable athlete, but Jermaine Defoe wants to make the most of us what's yeah. left and he's open for dialogue and chat and blah, blah, blah. You get that buy-in if you've got the right environment so do you think you could have gone and coached at a lower level then or do you think you almost needed to go into a level where you had that kind of elite mentality yeah i think so um look some uh, there might be times jordan this journey moving forward where it might take me where i have to do that but if you ask me what my preference would be it'd be to work at the top and stay as high and be around the best players i can possibly be around that's not being disrespectful to levels of the game not at all. I watch all levels of the game. Uh, I watched the game the other night. Harrogate v Bradford. Full game. Watched the game. It was the only game that was on the telly. But I watched it. I'm, I don't disrespect levels of the game. But for me, my buzz and my ambition is to stay as high as I can. Do you think it's harder for players or easier for players under you that you had such a good career? Um, I think different players probably handled it initially differently. Yeah. I think some people were in a shell a little bit, maybe intimidated in, in the early days, early weeks. I think they were hanging on to every word and also really open to see what I was going to be like. I think they were fascinated, what's he going to be like? He's new, he hasn't been anywhere before. I think the first two, three weeks of me going in at Rangers were probably the most important two, three weeks. After all you've achieved, were you still nervous at that point? Very, really? extremely. I think addressing the Rangers squad for the first time, probably one of the most nervous talks I've ever done. And I've heard it said that managers have often said that, that players will test you at some stage. You want to know where the line is or what the standards are. So what was the first maybe test? Maybe you might be able like to get away with it once or maybe a certain individual, you might be able to bend the truth or try and thing you But I think as a group of footballers, yeah, certainly when you've got experienced players in the room, they'll work you out pretty fast. I, I think I think you, you, your tactics for your first game, I think they're really wanting to know what your style is going to be. Right. Um, you know, are you going to be a defensive coach? Are you going to be an attacking coach? You know, how is he going to set us up? What formations are you going to use? I think the players are really waiting for you to maybe, I don't know whether it fails the right word or to get something wrong or you do feel like, certainly in the first few months, everything's a test and... All eyes, it's like the, their eyes are burning you, waiting for you to get something wrong. So it was a very important stage the first few months to sort of get their trust. And how connected does your management career feel to your playing career? Do you think that you basically, without knowing it at the time, you spent your playing career learning things that you're now putting into practice every day? Yeah, for sure. 
I think the career I've had definitely shaped me. Um, a lot of the standards that I've lived by and worked under, um, a lot of the non-negotiables that managers have gave me, I've tried to bring in. You know, we, we have a leadership group. I, I like the dressing room to run itself. There's a lot of things, yeah. I'd say the majority of the things I've learned through my playing career I try and use in the way I manage. So can I ask you about the leadership group then? Because your role as a player here at Liverpool always intrigues me that you were seen as, like we often use the phrase on this podcast, around being a cultural architect, so a leader without necessarily having the title of it, that you defend the standards, you call people out when they're not doing it. Mm. And you weren't worried about necessarily being popular. It was about doing the right thing rather than... Yeah, I wasn't someone who called people out in front of groups. I'd never try and belittle anyone or disrespect anyone. Um, I think it's important that people don't think I was this type of leader who'd make people feel crap. I was someone who'd speak to people more in 1v1 situations um, or I'd address the group and say, this is what I believe in. This is what I think is right. This is what we, you know, and, and I'd have a, a, a strong opinion, but I was never the type of leader who would be forceful or try and intimidate or well, do that style. But I've heard it said about you, though, Stephen, that, that some players were very aware where they stood in your uh, in uh, in your level of respect. So there's some players that said they were very aware that you didn't approve of them or you didn't rate them. I don't think that's important, whether I rate them or not. Um, I think the important thing when you're in that in the industry and in the dressing room is who's going to help you win football matches, who's going to help you be successful. I can't control whether a player thinks I rate them or whether I accept them. I don't really think that's important. What were you like though? Because now you're a manager, it's okay for to be clear about your opinion. What were you like as a player with players that you didn't think were doing their all for the cause like you were? Well, it'll depend. I think if they were trying and giving yeah. everything they've got. Uh, if they weren't, though? If they weren't, I, I think your job as the captain of Liverpool, if someone's not pulling the weight or is letting the team down or letting the club down, I think it's my job to let them know. But as I say, I had a style and a way of doing that. Mm. You know, a dressing room's an environment where everyone's entitled to say what they want. The Liverpool dressing room was always that way. People always think that me and Jamie Carragher were these kings of the castle and it was just about us too it certainly went we had a lot of experienced players in that dressing room and i think we were all on the same page in terms of what we expected from all the individuals in the room and who we were representing if there was someone in there who weren't pulling the weight or letting everyone else down it wasn't just me um, i think that the coaching staff with the likes of sammy lee and phil thompson and the managers we played under they'd be identified pretty quickly and they wouldn't be around for very long and that's just the way it is. That process of learning not to be selfish and then start to look at the wider group and the impact of it is a journey that you obviously went on. That, Like when Jake was asking you around, as a kid you were focused on, I'm getting my place in that team and I'm not going to surrender it. Mm. And that was very much around your own drives and your mm. own ambitions. When did that process of learning to sacrifice yourself for the wider group take place for you in your career? And how do you then teach I think, I think it was initially when I was given more responsibility by my coach or my coaches maybe being given the armband. For example, I was given the captaincy at 23. I remember having conversations with Gerard Hooley and Phil Thompson and the, the early conversations of getting given the captaincy. Now you're going to have to start thinking about other people. Because I think becoming a footballer at a professional level, it is 
a lot of it is about you and getting yourself right, doing the right things on and off the pitch to make sure your performance is good. Yeah, you're part of a team, but your job is to make sure that you contribute and bring your strengths to that team. I think as I came towards 23, 24 and I become Liverpool captain, I probably had to carry on doing that, but also adapt into someone who is there for the people, support other people. And that took time. That took time. That didn't happen overnight. I didn't all of a sudden become this person who everyone could bounce off. I had to become a better leader, yep. a better person, uh, whilst my, maintaining my own high standards. What sort of help or advice or support did you get to be able to make that mental transition? I couldn't have done it without Jamie Carragher or Sammy Appiah. I replaced Sammy. I think his reaction was first class. Jamie was a natural leader as well. Um, different type of leader for me, maybe a bit more vocal. Um, he had his own, obviously, traits of his own leadership. But having the support and the backing of them, even though they were older and more experienced than me, yep. certainly helped me blossom into a better leader. So how would you help a player now at Rangers make that transition from being selfish to seeing the bigger picture? I think I, I have. Um we named a, a new captain. I'd obviously seen stuff from the outside at Rangers, um, but we, we named a new captain in James Tavernier and we knew he was a fantastic player and uh, he was quite consistent and he had respect from the other players in terms of a player. Um, myself and Gary and the other coaching staffs have tried to help James become a, a leader in, in other areas as well and try and give him that support and help him blossom as a leader as well from our own experiences, you know. But I think that's not just me, that's Gary as well and, and other people at the club. How careful do you have to be not to constantly refer back to your experiences as a player with your players now? Or do you think it's a really helpful thing? Um, I, I definitely tap into my own experiences, but it's not so much along the lines of, oh, I remember I scored this goal or I made this run or I remember this game when I did this or that. It was more. It's more like um, I remember maybe getting something wrong, or mem remember doing the wrong decision, or I remember being a bit selfish at this time, or blah blah blah. And I'll tap into stuff where maybe I don't think there's any harm in that. No, tapping into that. I think in some ways it's probably helpful for those players because when, when you recall someone's career, you think of all the good stuff, right? But you can talk to them about how sort of torn you were that summer, where it, there was the Chelsea situation on the table, and you may mm. have left Liverpool, or you know losing big games and big moments or seeing great players like Torres leave Liverpool and wondering what that meant for your own future. I think all of those negative moments. Yeah, I think my, my careers took me on a journey of highs and lows yeah. over a big period of time. And I think that's prepared me and it's the reason why I feel I can be a manager. And that's where I think I can support players because I do believe I've, I've not, not been there and got the T-shirt type, but I've definitely experienced the majority of what you can experience as a player on and off the pitch. And I think even in those moments, you were, without without knowing it, kind of managing other players. Of all of the things that happen in your career, shall I tell you the thing that I think about when I think about you as a leader? It isn't lifting the trophies. It, it isn't sort of the big lows or the big highs. It is when John Arnaurisa misses his penalty in mm. the Champions League final. And as he walks back to the group, you're the first one to break away from the line of players and put your arm around him straight away and comfort him. And you are on the verge of missing out on your greatest moment as a player because of what he's just done. Thankfully, yeah, it didn't happen. Yeah, because I think 
I think as well as I think you've got to be a good person as well. I think mm. you know football's emotions and different things happen. It's not just all the good things that you see on the TV. Uh, people have feelings, and you get to know people. You build relationships, and you know how much they want it as much as you. There's been many occasions where I've done stuff that's not really to do with football or on the pitch that have made me feel just as proud as going up and lifting a trophy. Like for example, when tournaments with England haven't gone well. And you know that the whole group are about to be battered from pillar to post and you've had to step forward and do a press conference and take a lot of the responsibility and the blame. And there's, there's a lot of things that uh, come with leadership and it's not just the walking up to lift trophies and getting the credit and getting a nine out of ten. And Were they conscious decisions though? Or when In that John Aaron Reeves moment, did you actually consciously think, right, he's going to be really upset with that, I'm going to go speak to him? Was it almost just innate for I want to be there for him. I want to show him that. Um, I'm not just on his back when he puts it in the top corner from 40 yards. I'm there for him when he's at his, his lowest moments as well. And I think that's when you get respected as a leader, when you are there for your teammates in the good and the bad times and the indifferent times. And I think as a manager, I want to be there for me players. You know, players are human beings. They've got kids, they've got families, they've got emotions, they're going through different things. No one can control what's in the future. I think a big thing for me at Rangers, certainly in the first few months, was to show these that, yeah, okay, I've been Stephen Gerrard, I've had a good career, but this is the start of a new journey as a manager and it's not just about demanding the best out of them in terms of a ball at the feet. It's to be there for them as well, for, for everything. Give them support when they need it, maybe when they're not having a good time. And I think. What's your advice to people who find it difficult to put themselves at the front and take pressure for everyone else around them? I think you get to know the individuals. Um, all individuals are different. They have different levels of talent. Uh, they bring different strengths. They're different characters. They're different people, different humans. I think over time you have to get used to them and you have to try and get the best out of that individual. But you have to realise that one individual is completely different to the other. Some people manage themselves. I'll give you an example. Stephen Davis. He comes into work, his standards are the same every day, his diet, his body weight, his attitude, his energy. He manages himself. I have to give him very little. Then the other scale, we've got younger players who are new, they're brand new, they're still finding themselves, they're still shaping themselves as a player, as a human. He needs more of my time, he needs more 1v1 chats, he needs more guidance, more help, more support. It's getting to know what does that individual need and trying to support them in the best way you can. Can I ask you then about some of the examples you talk about, some of these younger people, and just switch it a little bit. Given the sort of rich career and the experiences you've had, what do you teach your children from that? What's the most important lessons that you take from that career and pass on to your kids? Basically, what the one-liners that I got when I was at their age, I've got obviously three girls and, and a little boy at the moment who's only three, but... With the girls, it's very much be honest and be respectful. Two very important things for me. But you normally get out of life what you put in. So whatever you decide to be, there's no pressure on my kids. You know, they don't have to be footballers. They don't have to love football. It's them finding out what they want to do, what they want to be, and me giving them the support and stuff. But basically letting them know that they'll normally get out of life what they put in. You know, if you make sacrifice, if you work hard, if you're good to people, Normally, things work out. Do you let them fail at things? Because one of the issues with modern parenting is we make sure our kids are great at everything all the time and not learning to fail is a really dangerous lesson because... From my experience, 
I think sometimes failure helps you to become better. Oh, definitely, yeah. And I'm One saying a lot of people don't percent. let their kids fail. Do you allow yours to fail and to struggle at things to learn how the world really is? It's not an easy one as a parent. I don't want them to fail. Yeah. Um, but depending on what the failure was and blah, 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 and how they felt about it, I think it'd depend on how I reacted to it. But if I had a chat to them about it, sometimes getting stuff wrong and making mistakes and, and failing at something could help you in, in, in the big picture and in the long run. What's your approach to failure? Analyze, reflect, work out how, why, how and why, and um, go again to make it better. But it's okay though, isn't it? I mean, failure is okay because that's where you find your Not limits. at the time, it's not. It's <laughs> fucking horrible, let me tell you. It's horrible, but um, it's happened. It's about yeah. dealing with it, yeah. analyzing, reflecting, and finding the answers and deciding whether you want to go and do it again. But I'm I'm up for um, a challenge. I'm not scared of failure, um, even though I know that it stays with me mm. for a long time. I'm someone who, who is driven and, and wants to challenge myself I again. wonder, you know, whether that moment against Chelsea, if that hadn't happened and you'd won the Premier League that season, I wonder whether you would be a manager now. So do I. I don't think you would necessarily. That's your opinion. But what do you think? Because you would have won everything, done everything. But I think missing that buzz of winning and competing and that routine, that daily routine of wanting to win, I'm not sure I can. I could have went from the age of 36, 37 for the rest of my life without some kind of drive to compete yeah. and win. So can I ask you then, like, given how that moment from 2014 still lives with you that you've referenced... How did you feel watching Liverpool win it this year? Was there a part of you that was envious, jealous? No, not one, one beer. Honestly? Not one beer. So how did you process it then? I felt like part of me healed more than than did it? any of them. Because? Feelings. Just because I know not only did it hurt me, it hurt a lot of people who had followed this club for many, many years and they work on a daily basis. Liverpool fans commit themselves to that club and they, they work every day. They love the club. It's in the heart. Uh, I've, I've lived there for 20 years. I'm, I'm, I'm more. Um, I knew what that meant, that premiership, to an awful lot of people. My own family, to me. I, I, I mean, the way the club were with me during that time, which is which will remain private, during that run-in to win the Premier League, it was special how that club was with me. Do you think that's because they were aware of how big it was? What it meant to me yeah. and what I'd probably been through and they listen to interviews yeah. and you've still got the relationships with all them people and stuff i think a lot of people were probably wondering whether i was jealous but I, nah so can i ask you a question about that about that game specifically because I, I i want to almost tackle a bit of a myth and i don't know if it's true or not that there was a story that one of the techniques that brendan rogers was using at the time was reading out letters from loved ones before a game yeah, to let true. you know how, how important it was. And before that game, it was letters from your family that yeah. had sought, and on whether that tipped you over the edge emotionally that day, that it was almost, you were trying too hard, you were too eager. Are you talking about the City game or the actual Chelsea game? All I, in that I, running, but I, I think I, it's a Chelsea game. I can't game. remember the exact game my family thing was read out, but it was certainly towards the latter stages. But did that help or did that tip you over the edge emotionally? I used to like it. I liked that technique because I think he really 
pulled on your heartstrings before games, and he'd done it probably for the majority of them games that season. Yeah. He picked a different player. and Clever, I think. Uh, very clever, and um, I liked the way he'd done it in, in secret to people that, yeah, I think it was brilliant. And there's different ways and techniques how to get the best out of people. I'm not sure whether mine was on that day. I couldn't really answer that question to you, to be honest. But talking about, did I get too emotional in that running? 100%. Because I look at the reaction after the City game and blah, blah, blah. And for sure, yeah. Because it meant Because so I'll tell much. you where that came to me was. And, and, and I'll tell you another one that I was debating whether to raise this with you. But... An occasion that really surprised me once, observing you in your career around when you speak about being on the edge was, you know that last game against Manchester United? Mm. I'll confess, I was in the away end that mm. day. And what had struck me was watching you warming up as a substitute mm. that afternoon. And I was really surprised when I saw you take the bait from the United fans mm. and, and respond to the goading that you were getting. Mm. And I was surprised at the lack of emotional control that it seemed to have on you, that it seemed that you seemed to buy. Yeah. Was there also a, a bit of fear around at that time for you with the fact that your Liverpool career was coming to an end and you having to face up to that? Or was fear never an emotion around that? I'm not sure fear is the right word. There was definitely a, um, an awareness that I wasn't the player I was probably mm. three, four years earlier. Obviously, I'd changed position and I was adapting uh, as, as a midfielder, if you like, and becoming a little bit more reserved and a deep lion midfielder, whatever. People have different terms for it, quarterback, playmaker, whatever. Um, I knew I wasn't the maraud and full of energy, yeah. jump round and go and press and get in people's face. I knew I weren't that type of player. And I knew I was aware of my age and stuff, but I still believed I could have contributed in, in, in a strong way to that team and that club. And I think if them situations, Madrid away, Man United at home, I think if if things were different or went different for me, I believe I would have stayed for another year. Really? Mm. Why do you think that? I just do. I, I think them experiences and them disappointments maybe push you towards thinking, you know, maybe it is time to move on and, and, and do something different. Whereas if you start in them games and you still feel like you're an important player and you're a starter and stuff, maybe you think, well, maybe it's not time, maybe you stay. But, you know, that's it's all in the past. I, you know, It's so interesting though, isn't it? Because all of this, again, whether it's the emotional control thing in the Man United mm. game or that incredible moment after the City game when you actually cried on the pitch and, yeah. and you, you know that was a big moment as well, or whether it's that dawning realisation that you know your career with Liverpool is slowly coming to an end. All of this, again, filters towards experiences that you will be dealing with on a season-by-season -season basis as a manager. 100%, yeah. I'm, I've heard you say that you, you feel like you were born for playing. Do you ever feel like you will get to that place and have a similar relationship to management that you had to being a football player? I hope so. Are you on that journey now? Is yeah, it feeling I'm, more I'm, and more like you? Yeah, as, as a player, I felt like I got to a place where I felt like I could be really really good and strong yeah. and I can compete against anyone there was a stage in a period of my career where I, I did feel like no one bothered me in terms of the challenge or who I was up against you I felt invincible not, not invincible I didn't fear anyone yeah I didn't fear anyone yeah I felt like I was strong every part of my game was strong I was in a good place and I could really go toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with anyone I did feel like that whether I did or not is a different debate 
I hope one day I can get to a stage as a manager where I feel complete, where I feel I can compete against the, the, the best managers in the world. But it's different because you need a lot of things to fall into place. You need to be around the best players. You need to be at a certain club. Uh, it is a completely different role. Um, but in terms of that feeling where you can compete against anyone, I'd love to get to that position as a manager. I'm obviously on a journey to try and get somewhere close to that. And when do you feel you left behind the tag of being a former footballer and started to become I don't think you ever lose that tag because that's what I am. That's what I'm proud to be and an and ex-player. I'm proud of the career I had. People always want to talk to me about my career. So I don't think you ever leave that tag. But I think for me, the way I go about my business now, I, I very rarely think about Steven Gerrard, the player, unless I'm trying to tap into an experience. I try and live my life now as trying to be the best manager I can be. And you get so in so terms much. of me personally, I've left it. But Others for other people, yeah, I don't think you ever lose that tag of being the ex-player because people always bring it up. You, you chat to remember seeing you there, you remember that game, and you can't get away from it. You gave so much to being a player. I mean, it dominated your life for 20 years. Will you allow yourself to be that obsessive about management? Will you allow it to dominate your life in the same way? No, but I think there will be times when it does. Uh, and, and in the what two and a half years I've been a, a full-time manager and you know as a coach preparing to be that uh, at the academy and stuff it's different you know you, you you're working with kids the development and that the points are not important you're trying to grow and get pitch experience but when you go into the real game and you're representing Rangers and you know what it means to certain people there are times when it dominates your life and you can't control that, that that's what it is um, but there will be a stage in my life where I have to give it up for the sake of my family and for myself to cut it and live life with a bit of peace, I think. but I wonder if you can do that. I hope so. I hope so. I think there's got to be a stage in your life where you have calm and, and peace. And um, But at the moment, I don't feel ready for that. I do still feel full of energy. I do think I can help players. Um I do see opportunities to have more highs and buzzes and adrenaline rushes. You know, I do see things that I want to go and achieve. So I'm not ready for that now. But for Alex and the kids, at some stage, I'm going to have to give myself to them 100%. Have they? When that'll be, who knows? Have they ever asked for that? Alex would, would take it tomorrow. I bet. She well, you have tomorrow. to remember how much the family come with you on that mm. emotional journey. You know, we've spoken a lot about 2014. She would have been the one picking you up after that, I imagine. 100%, yeah. She's the one who brings me down when I'm coming and think I'm fantastic. If I've scored a goal or we've won a game, she pipes me down. And when you're on the floor and you're staring at the walls, she's the one who helps pick you up. She's she going through the journey as well. So at some point, and the kids, yeah. the kids see it. You know, you do your best to keep it away from you. Try and not bring it home. But any manager or any player that says, yeah, I don't take it home, I leave it in the car, they're telling you lies. Brilliant. Um, we're going to finish with our quick-fire questions, as we always do. Um, the first one is the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you have to buy into. Honesty, respectful, and commit. Everything. A lot. All in for me. 
What advice would you give a teenage Stephen coming from Highton? Um, a teenage Stephen Gerrard from Highton? Go for it. Go for it. It's worth it. Even though the even though the lows are tough, go for it because it's an incredible ride and uh, the the highs are difficult to describe. Go for it. Go and enjoy. It. How important? I'll go is... through it with you. <laughs> you, you I'll will do it again. <laughs> yeah. How important is legacy to you? It's not. It's not. I think legacies for other people, they, they they decide how they want to remember you and whether people like you, whether people think you you were as good as him or you should have done that, you should have done that. It's for other people to decide. For me, it's just trying to maximise the most I can from my profession and from my life. I want to maximise and have the best experiences I can have. Do I want to leave a legacy behind? Well, yeah, if I had the choice, but... Other people have an opinion on your legacy. I don't really think about it. So following on from that then, one of Bill Shankly's, uh, the words under his statue are that he made the people happy. Are you happy? Yeah, I'm happy. Um, I could be happier. If what I could would go back and change a few things, I'd change them. You can't let it go. No, 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 not just, not just, you'll, you'll keep alluding to that moment because I've mentioned it, I'm talking about, I'd love to be sitting here with more trophies, of course I would, but, you know, you get out of it what you get out of it. Um, in terms of Bill Shankly, I want the people to be proud and to see that I was one of them and I committed and I was all in and I'd done my best uh, from a football point of view. In terms of, as a, as a person, I just the only people that really matter to me the people that want to matter they're close to me other people's opinions and i'm, I'm not really don't really think about that too much because i can't control what people think about me what would you say is your one golden rule to living a high performance life sacrifice sacrifice is massive i think there's two there's the sacrifice and as i say that word them, them two words being all in i don't think you can get to where you want to get to if you 80, 90% on it. I think you've got to go for it. Listen, thanks so much for sitting and chatting to us for the for the past hour and a bit. I think... Um, was that an hour, was it? Yeah, it was an hour. That was fun. You, you know what? I, I just love the fact that you've had an amazing career, yet those few little moments, and they are little when you compare them to the amazing things that you did achieve, are still igniting that fire every single day. And I think that... Um, I think when we see you go on to have a successful management career and when you sit here and have a conversation like this, I have absolutely no doubt that you will go on and be a successful manager. I hope so. But I think if we do this again in 10 years, it wouldn't surprise me if I'm talking about the couple of things I've missed out on or gone close to. But maybe that's your if, superpower, though. Maybe that's yeah, what maybe you've got that is, that, that is different to always, everyone else. When I analyse my career properly and stuff and, and the highs and lows, I always felt like a high came on the back of something that... Was I don't know whether it gave me extra determination or something. I think sometimes, you could never say this to people, but sometimes a low or a bad time or a disappointment can be the catalyst and the trigger to something really, really amazing and special. Um, and if anyone came to me to chat about that or was in a bad place or missed out on something or blah, 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 I, I'd like to be in a position to say, well, look, let that happen to me and you've got a choice now. You know, what's next? I think at the end of the day, you're going to reflect on those moments and be grateful for them rather than so. sad about them. I hope so. Damien. Jake. That was 
an amazing insight, I think, into how Stephen is reflecting on a remarkable career as a Liverpool player, but using that on a daily basis to try and take Glasgow Rangers where he wants them to be. That was a real privilege to have that conversation. Yeah, it felt an absolute treat. I was reminded of, um, there's a lovely speech by uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, that talks about the man in the arena. And that was the, they were the words that kept coming to mind as I listened to Stephen, you know, the man that dares to, that dares greatly, but then occasionally fails and, and we'll comes up short. will never have a place with those cold and timid souls that know neither victory nor defeat. Yeah, absolutely. That's the exact word. And that's what I was thinking about, Stephen, that although he spoke about those crushing disappointments and was and that seemed to drive him in many ways, the fact is this is a guy living a high-performance life and sometimes that's gone wrong, but it's about putting yourself out there again. And I found it really quite inspiring. And do you look at the mindset he has about those moments in his life that went badly, that he still holds so tightly onto and uses them to inspire him. Do you think that's healthy for him? Because I think it's probably healthy for his career. I think he will be a better manager for ha yeah. carrying that inspiration with him. Yeah, very much. I think there was an initial thought when he responded that I thought it's probably not healthy for him as an individual to to allow those moments to define him because there's so many more positive elements mm. that, that um, characteristics that should define him from the outside. But I think the, the telling bit was at the end where he said that he, he noticed the pattern that whenever he had a disappointment, he followed, he followed it up with a high. And I think for, so from a professional point of view, he's driving that. So he wants to go and win the premiership in Scotland. And eventually I've no doubt he wants to come back down to England and achieve that same success. Well, I've, I've heard and seen lots of interviews with him over the years and, you know, that went places that none of those have gone. It was a, it was a real pleasure and credit to him for opening up. Yeah, I felt like the term you used at the start, it felt a real privilege here that he trusted us to come and open up and, and to share these insights that hopefully people listening can take away and apply in their own lives, whatever the, uh, the endeavours that they're engaged in. Well, there you go. Um, that was Stephen Gerrard talking really openly, really candidly, very honestly here on the High Performance Podcast. It's, if it's the first time you've ever listened to the pod, that's the kind of thing that you can expect. Let me just remind you that, of course, you can subscribe for free. We're also on YouTube. You can follow Damien at Liquid Thinker on Instagram. I'm at Jake Humphrey and the pod as well at High Performance on Instagram. We'd love you to come along and get loads of extra content there. Uh, Damien, a really, really enjoyable episode. You know, it's been a couple of weeks since we recorded that and I've been thinking about it a lot. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really loved his honesty. And uh, I think I was quite moved by him. I know I mentioned that that speech from Theodore Roosevelt, the man in the arena, but I really love that line about he dared greatly. You know, sometimes it didn't come off, but many times it did. And I just think the competitive courage that he showed was uh, was really was really humbling to uh, to listen to. Yeah, and I think, you know, whether you love football or not, whether you love Liverpool or Rangers or you don't, um, you can't not realise that that is a man who is driven to go on and achieve plenty in his career. I mean, we even, he, we even spoke, didn't we, about whether he has to drop down the football ladder eventually in his career to go back up again. I, this isn't just a short-term thing for him. This is now his life, isn't it, being a manager? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this the other day uh, in relation to some of our other guests, though, that they're not doing it for money. They're not doing it for fame. They're not doing it for prestige. They're just doing it because they love it. And I think there's something really powerful about that realisation that 
that it's about finding something that you love and that just keeps you going. It fuels the passion and the resilience to keep going through difficult times as well. Well, mate, look at all the famous people who over their lifetimes, they didn't actually experience fame. They didn't make their money. So those people where we say, oh, they died penniless, they died poor, they were only celebrated after their death. Those great people, those great leaders, those inspirers, they didn't get any of the plaudits when they were alive. So they can't have done it for the money. They can't have done it for the feedback. And I think sometimes these days we are obsessed with external validation. We're, we're obsessed with feedback on social media, you know, rather than just say, well, I don't care what people think, whether people like it or not. This is my thing and I'm going to follow that path. Yeah, there's a great quote that says, you know, like um, if you want to perform in front of thousands, you've got to learn how to do it in the shadows. And uh, I think that's it. I think where the real love of this comes from is just doing it because you love it, not because you're looking for the pat on the back. There's something really powerful about that message for anybody listening to this, that this isn't about the wealth, the fame, the prestige that comes from it. It's just about finding something that you love and then mastering it. Brilliant. Um, Listen, uh, for any of you listening to this, we really, 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 really appreciate it if you're able to hop onto wherever you get your podcasts and rate us and review us. It makes a huge difference. It allows us to access so many more people. Um, We've had a really nice review actually on on Apple Podcasts from Radiohead1234567, which is a great username. He says, what a refreshing podcast to tune into asking focused and penetrating questions. I'm a construction project manager and also a father of three young girls aged 12 10 and 7 Ooh, good luck and i found so many golden nuggets to apply uh, fault versus responsibility striving to complete ownership and accountability clear goals and then he says the world has never been more blame and mediocrity fostering than now this podcast cuts through the sea of cotton wool i like that brilliant yeah i think it really resonates i think what's really interesting uh, from that from that kind feedback is that this has been a theme that's gone right from series one, Jake. Um, I, the, I often tell people the most um, downloaded particular clip was from series one's interview with Robin Van Persie, where he recounted the conversation he'd had with Shaquille, his 14-year-old son. And the reason I think it's been downloaded over 5 million times is the fact that It's a conversation that all of us are having, both with ourselves, with other people and with our children about when he said about you can either choose to be a loser by blaming other people or you can choose to be a winner by being accountable and looking at yourself in the mirror. And I think that comment there is testimony that that message is is consistent across both the series we've done so far. And I think... um you know, sometimes it's not an easy conversation, is it, for people to hear because we're kind of challenging that a little bit. It's, it's a hell of a lot easier in this world to blame external factors, to look for someone else, to kind of say, well, this happened or that happened and not to take it on your shoulders. And I think if someone was to say to me, now you're at series three, what's the single most important message to have come out of the, the whole series, the, the two series of high performance that we've done? It is that the people that we speak to take responsibility regardless of whose fault it is. It's an absolute irrelevance to them. And I often talk about 100% responsibility, which I, for me kind of sums it up because it's responsibility for literally everything, Just things you can control and things that you have absolutely no control about. Yeah, exactly. I think like that game, guess who? I think if you were to share the, uh, some of the experiences that some of our guests have had and just give the examples of, from Ant Middleton, you know, being sent to 
prison and speaking about the death of his father at a very young age to Michelle Moan talking about her father being paralysed uh, to, you know, Rio Ferdinand talking about uh, that drugs test that he was banned for. I think there's not one of our guests that haven't had a moment of trauma or a setback or a difficulty that would have been easy to deflect and point the finger at somebody else. And yet you're right, that message of they all held their hands up, accepted it, and then looked to move on from it was a, is a really powerful message about responsibility. Definitely. Well, look, Damien, thank you very much. Um, that's episode one of the new series, Down. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you're, uh, if you're new to this, go back, listen to the previous couple of, uh, couple of series. There's loads of fas- fascinating takeaways on there. Um, not least Johnny Wilkinson, um, who certainly got a lot of people talking at the end of series two. Damien, thanks so much, mate. No, thanks, Jake. Good to see you again. Uh, a quick reminder, you can follow Damien on Instagram. He's at Liquid Thinker. I'm at Jake Humphrey at High Performance is the pod. We've also had um, millions of people getting involved in our YouTube channel, which you can find. Just go to YouTube and look for High Performance. I want to say a big thanks to Tom Griffin at Rethink Audio for his hard work on this episode. Just remember, every single Monday, if you subscribe right now, the High Performance podcast will drop into your inbox, full of inspiration, full of guidance, full of wisdom every single Monday. But for now, for the next seven days, please take responsibility, take control, have a great week, and we'll see you next Monday. You can also find the podcast on YouTube as well. Just head to YouTube and search for High Performance Podcast. We've had millions of people engaging with the pod uh, right there, watching our videos, the stuff that you won't hear anywhere else and you won't see anywhere else. So feel free to get involved on our YouTube channel. Bye-bye.